Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Now the global head of quantitative research at Sockgen, Andrew Lapthorne got an early taste in unconventional macro thinking from the likes of Albert Edwards and James Montier. Over a career spanning 25 years, Andrew is engaged in the study of market prices, seeking understanding in their levels and volatilities, both on an absolute and relative basis. Out of this work comes a framework for helping investors identify, capture, and defend against risk exposures. Our conversation considers some of the market vol episodes most formative to Andrew's process. And here, we travel all the way back to the late 1990s, when post the Asian crisis, disinflation began to travel around the world, depressing bond yields and leading to increasingly active central banks. The result, a tech bubble and substantial derating of all assets cyclical. The global financial crisis was, unsurprisingly, greatly instructive for Andrew as well, helping him appreciate the Merton distance to default risk that equity investors are subject to. In the balance of our discussion, we consider the here and now and learn of the work that Andrew and his team are doing for clients seeking refuge from inflation. In this context, he suggested that bond investors use, quote, dangerous equity to hedge safe bonds, an area that identifies certain stocks like those driven by an underlying commodity as performing strongly during inflationary periods. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Andrew Lapthorne. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Andrew Lapthorne. He is the Global Head of Quantitative Research at SockChain. Andrew, it's great to connect, and thanks for being a guest today on the Alpha Exchange. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on. Well, we are having our conversation at a really interesting time in markets. So many cross-currents and risk dynamics, many of which we haven't seen for a very long time with respect to monetary policy and inflation dynamics. And of course, all of this occurs amidst a joyous bubble or at least a joyous period in paper wealth. So we're going to have a lot to get into here. I'd love to get started with you and just your your career development, how you got started in the industry. Kind of take us through the early days for you and, and how you came about a career in finance. I started through a lot of photocopying, basically. <laughs> I had a summer internship at uh, Kleinwalt Benson, which was a you know, fairly traditional investment bank in, in London. And I had a, a summer internship in the macro department, which contained quite a few interesting characters. And my job was to, to come in, produce effectively a spreadsheet called the market arithmetic, which is essentially told a lot of people about what the performance had been. And then we had a UK version, which I remember fondly was on blue paper. And we had a European version, which was on yellow paper. And at 6.45 every morning, I would update this spreadsheet and then I would run off lots of photocopiers. I had a love-hate relationship with that photocopying machine. And then my job was to literally walk it all around the office. So I'd drop that piece of paper on traders' desks, on sales guys' desks. It would go up to the investment bankers upstairs. So I was, I guess, a glorified quant post boy. But a lot of this was mid-1990s. And believe it or not, email was not used that much. So actually, a lot of it was put in envelopes. And then the postman at at Climewalk Benson would then walk it around some of our clients. So yeah, after three months 
came to the end of a summer internship. And I guess because I was handing a piece of paper with a smiley face and with good humor at basically seven o'clock in the morning to the boss, he decided that I deserved a crack at going full time. And there was a space in the quant team. I mean, my history was I knew nothing about finance, absolutely nothing whatsoever. My formal education, I guess, was in computing. And prior to coming into the city, I'd spent four years in the French Alps. So I was really quite poorly prepared to be a quant analyst. But I had a blank canvas. I had no idea what I was doing. So therefore, what (laughs) what I did was pretty much up to me, but I was quite good at computing. And actually, the city seemed to be quite full of economists and accountants and not too many computer scientists in the day. So that was a slightly unusual starting point for me. From there, I kind of fluked this a bit because just ended up working really hard. My boss then left to unfortunately go and run the Korean office in 1997, which was not the best of timing to go and run the Korean office. And I then created a document called Style Counseling, which essentially was a very simplistic backtesting of factors, equity factors in the UK market. In 1998, I was lucky enough to get number one ranked in the Reuters survey in the UK. And as a consequence of that, they essentially gave me the quant job at the tender age of 27. And I've been pretty much running quant teams of some order since then. I really should do something else, I guess, but (laughs) that's essentially what I've been doing. So that was a starting point. But, you know, the nature of what we do is so interesting. It's so exciting and it changes all the time. And you're always dealing with new things that although I've been doing the same thing effectively since the mid-1990s, it's such a fascinating and I'm so lucky to be in that position and to be fortunate to work with some really, really clever people as well over the years. Well, over the course of your career, we've seen so many different market cycles, some of which are seemingly impossibly low vol, some are impossibly high vol. And then in Europe specifically, and especially as you landed this head of quant job at 27 in 1998, the euro itself was about to be a thing. And you know, it almost became not a thing by 2011 and 2012. You've had political uncertainty and incredible expression of that uncertainty in asset prices through things like Brexit and British pound vol. So such an interesting seat for you to come at markets and look at them from a quantitative perspective. I actually wanted to, I can't help but relay that your experience in copying is so similar to mine. I started in 1991 at Nomura Security, supporting the chief economist. And I had also a love-hate, I'd say mostly hate with our copier. You know, <laughs> you load up a hundred of these reports and God forbid halfway through something goes on and you're inside this thing, right? You may as well get inside of it yourself. <laughs> so I wound up not wanting to have that happen during the day. And so I said, you know, let me have it out with the copier at basically five or six in the morning before anyone gets in. <laughs> so I, yeah. I would just take the train so early. Double-sided photocopying. Exactly. People just don't know, don't know the pain there. <laughs> this way, if I kick it, no one, no one sees it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Paper exactly. guns. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Exactly. So much for us to talk about. And, you know, I've been reviewing some of, of the recent work from your team, which 
I see in there is very focused on trying to find these ways to defend a portfolio against a risk exposure that might be accumulating in markets. And so you're focusing a lot on inflation. And I'm, I'm sure over time, you know, those risk dynamics come and go. They change in character. And of course, the set of tools that you need in order to efficiently hedge a portfolio changes as a result. But let's walk through some of the kind of risk blowups that we've seen over time and, and specifically the ones that for you as a, someone that's thinking a lot about markets and asset prices have been most formative. You know, walk us through an event or two that's really tended to you know, provide the foundation of your risk framework, your risk philosophy. What are some of those big events? I mean, the biggest really started in the 1990s. I mean, I've sat next to a guy called Albert Edwards pretty much all my career. He was at Climewatts with me. He was my boss for some time there. We moved to Societe Generale together. And a lot of that kind of outside of the box thinking was created amongst that group of Climewalk macro people. And it tended to be bearish, but not bearish for bearish sake. It tended to think at, you know, in terms of what are big picture outcomes given what is going on. So Albert was very much formed from his experiences in Japan, what was going on in terms of their kind of boom and then bust and their journey to deflation and zero interest rate policy. And then you obviously had the Asian crisis and that effectively sending a huge deflationary force across the world. So the late 1990s was really a period when you know, inflation was not only being conquered, but deflation and disinflation was starting to rear its head. And the consequences of conquering inflation were significant. You know, essentially, you've got things like the bond equity correlation switching around. You've got cyclical volatility becoming something that people just didn't want to own. Because if you're dealing in, in a world of low nominal GDP quantities, your ability to switch between kind of boom and bust is quite high. And then this reliance as well on monetary policy, you know, the, the kind of Greenspan years of monetary policy reacting because of markets, you know. So I was sitting next to somebody who had kind of seen or foreseen as ever with a bit of advance, you know, what was going on in the tiger economies of Asia, seeing how they were imploding, seeing how they were then exporting disinflation around the world, how that was then reacting in pushing down bond yields. And then you had two kind of responses to those low bond yields. You had one which was to derate all things cyclical, and the other was to create a tech bubble because people thought, well, if we lower the discount rate, we could buy growth stocks simply because on a low discount rate basis, that made more sense. And then you had the narrative as well, which then added fuel to that. So a lot of how I think was created through the work Albert was doing, but also the discussions the Climate Macro Group were having amongst themselves. And, you know, <laughs> as is typical when there's a crisis, you know, when the Asian crisis hit, everybody just went, oh, it's just a just a storm in, in a teacup. 
you could argue that the current storms that we have were all the result of that storm in the teacup several years later. So that was a big part of thinking. Then as well, you know, you learn things as you go along. So I'm, I'm an equity specialist or, or largely an equity specialist and knew nothing about credit markets. I hired a guy called Sebastian Lanchetti from our risk department who taught me a lot about credit risk. And it was fairly clear to me that equity investors didn't really think much about the relationship between equity and credit and volatility. And I've been using kind of the Moody's, KMV, Merton type framework an awful lot for the last 20 years because I think it very much marries up how volatility and changes in volatility kind of have real life consequences because they are causing a company's cost of debt you know, to rise and fall. So that kind of dynamic of having a virtuous credit cycle people borrowing lots of money, thinking they, they could borrow lots of money on an almost permanent basis, only to have the rug pulled away from them every time there's an economic crisis, simply because volatility goes up and volatility closes down access to credit. So that was a big part of my thinking, and I've been using those type of frameworks for, for decades now. You've got a bunch of interesting aspects there. You know, when we think about market volatility, of course, asset prices are responding to changes in growth fundamentals or earnings outlooks. And you also mentioned this kind of Merton model of, you know, distance to default is another one. And I think back and I wanted to get your take on this because I think there's a relevance to today. But if we look at, let's say the global financial crisis, and then fast forward maybe three years to the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis, these crisis events are really about market prices, right? It's the authorities trying to put out the fire of asset prices themselves being in a reflexive fashion, the problem. And maybe that was the same case during the Asian contagion in 97. These days, central bankers have really had their way with market prices for a number of years. And people say, well, the US is kind of going the way of Europe, which went the way of Japan, where the bond markets effectively just get fixed, right? They're administered by the central banks. I'm curious, just as you sort of look back on those events, the GFC and the sovereign crisis, what are the lessons from those two periods? And are there any aspects of them that have you thinking about our current situation these days? Well, I mean, the first lesson is that you could identify a huge problem and you can shout and scream about it as much as you want, but it doesn't necessarily mean anybody's going to take any note. Importantly, any policymaker is going to take note of you jumping up and down saying there's a problem. So all the CDOs and you know, CDSs and all that type of ninja loans and all that type of nonsense, it's not like people didn't know it was stupid. It's not like people weren't jumping up and down and saying this is getting out of hand. It's just that, that, you know, everything was going so well, so no one needed to do anything about it. So I think that's a difficulty you always have in trying to identify a problem, because it may be a while before that problem manifests itself into a crisis. So, you know, often you could be two to three years too early. And during that two to three period where you're early, actually things are very prosperous. 
and therefore you know it's very difficult to be negative when everything's apparently on the surface is doing so well i got a presentation pack a client actually found it and it was put together by albert edwards james monte myself and our sector strategist called phil isherwood and it was put together almost, I suppose, 20 years ago, so 2001, 2002. And we had a list of things that we would expect policymakers to have to do when interest rates went to zero. And we had a list of about seven or eight things. And we've literally ticked off every single one of those things we had on the list. But it was 20 years too early. In fact, I presented this work in front of central bankers and policymakers at the OECD in Paris around that time. And the response to my work was, don't be silly, interest rate cuts always work. So, you know, the big picture problem with identifying these issues is trying to be heard, trying not to appear stupid, but the likelihood of you having an impact on stopping those things happening is minimal. Going on to something slightly more technical, which is, you know, things like Merton's distance to default and volatility. Well, like it or not, and people will jump up and down saying, look, it's silly to use price volatility as a measure of risk. And fundamentally, yes, it is. But in reality, the risks models, the way they try to assess what a value of an asset is going to be worth in the future is they use historical volatility, whether that's value at risk or whether it's a credit model. So you will say, okay, I'm going to lend this business some money. It's got a billion dollars of assets. Given volatility of that asset, what do I think is going to be the value of that firm in six months' time? So clearly, if you're a business with low volatility, say a utility company, you could borrow more than a business with high volatility, say a cyclical mining company or a semiconductor business. So the differentiation between how much you will lend somebody was a function of the assets they own, but more importantly, a function of the volatility of that asset. Now, this really came about through LTCM. You know, LTCM, before LTCM, so long-term capital management, you had a lot of people who were marking values to book value. So you're sitting there going, I've lent this business some money, and this is the book value of what I've lent them. Ironically, since LTCM turned up, people realized that the value of the Russian bonds they were probably holding as collateral uh, had moved significantly. So you then got a significant move towards mark-to-market credit modeling. And I think that's been part of the problem because as volatility is depressed, people lend more because they think that the asset value is now more certain. So if you think that implied volatility is a measure of certainty and confidence, essentially low volatility is a measure of overconfidence and high volatility is a measure of lack of confidence. So the inevitable happens. People borrow an awful lot of money when volatility is low. 
And as normal cyclical things happen, like profits decline or you get a crisis, volatility rises. And as that volatility is rising, effectively, the credit score of those companies is deteriorating, not for necessarily economic reasons, not necessarily because their cash flows have just suddenly disappeared, but the market is repricing the risk of that asset. And this is a danger with crises because when you get a crisis, volatility goes up. When volatility goes up, it then has the potential to cause a credit crisis. Last year was very, very informative because typically in a crisis, you cut interest rates with the expectation that cutting those interest rates will calm down market volatility. Now, because COVID was not an economic problem, it was not a cyclical problem, there was nothing the central banks can do to calm volatility related to COVID simply by cutting interest rates. So volatility remained high, credit markets remained closed. So what the central banks decided to do was interfere directly in asset markets and purchase credit outright. So yeah, there's been an awful lot of different crises over the years, but what we've experienced from my experience is every crisis we get is accompanied by the potential for a credit crisis due to the fact that we keep adding leverage at every stage. I think what I'm hearing in that, and I I really tend to incorporate this into some of my own thinking, is that asset prices are unique in the sense that, and Chris Cole, who founded Artemis, has said this, he said, volatility is not just a statistic that we calculate, it's a player on the field that whether we're scoring our value at risk numbers to size up our portfolio, when we get these periods, let's say, of exceptionally low vol, they can really reinforce risk-taking. And where you wind up is a system that is probably bigger than it should have been. And sometimes it's the process of the vol going down. It's almost a circularity of risk-taking, pushing things like CDS spreads lower and lower in late 06, early 07 you know, even as the risk was building up. As you look at the financial system, the set of prices around the world across asset classes now, what aspects of some of these sort of pro-cyclical financial cycle-related vulnerabilities that we've encountered in the past do you see right now? Look, I still see, see a leverage problem. There's a lot of debt was taken on almost eight years ago when quantitative easing really started to take hold. A lot of that debt is still sitting on corporate balance sheets. It's not a large cap story necessarily, but as you start heading into mid caps and small caps, particularly in the, in the US, you start seeing levels of leverage, which would be challenging if credit spreads were to be away from where their current levels are. I think there's a mismatch between credit spreads and volatility. So if I was to look at a model-based credit spread, it should be much, much higher. So I think, I think we have introduced this concept of, I suppose, a central bank put on credit markets, given what happened last year, and that has disconnected volatility and credit spreads. That's the first time that's happened in our data in 30, 30 years. So there is obviously this, there's a total contradiction between what's going on in, in interest rate markets and what's going on in terms of the inflation story. Now, that's, you know, that's a massive conversation, but 
you know, people are always looking at the yield curve as to almost cement the economic view. They're saying, well, look, my economic view can't be right because the yield curve says it wants to do this. But the demand for bonds, and I suppose this falls into lots of other people's views, the demand for bonds is not driven by people who are solely buying and selling bonds on the basis of some kind of economic model. A lot of people are buying bonds because they have to buy bonds. They have no choice. So to expect the yield curve to steepen because inflation expectations are rising, I don't think is necessarily the case because there are lots of people who have to buy bonds and they don't have an alternative. So they can't buy cash because you can't just stick your money in a cash vehicle like you could 25 years ago. So I think there's a big dislocation between, I suppose, inflation risk and the bond market. And that's not to say, for example, oh, okay, you need to go off and short the bond market because what's going on in inflation. It's just that maybe the bond market is not a really good instrument to play around with inflation. So that's a curiosity. Uh, the other curiosity, of course, is if everybody thought there was going to be a cyclical upswing next year, then why, why aren't people buying cyclicals to the extent they're buying other stocks? We see transient inflation or is quite visible in quite a lot of pricing at the moment. So for every month that inflation is not transient, you're getting those things which do react to inflation reacting. The disconnect, as you know, between the nominal 10-year yield and inflation facts on the ground is striking. And it does beg for some alternative explanation. And as you noted, perhaps there's this forced demand for duration for risk-free assets. Certainly the central banks are a decent customer at any price. But I'm going back to a piece that the BIS wrote. It was maybe four years ago. It was when German yields first went negative nominally. And they were making the point, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. They were making the point that the demand for duration from entities like Swiss life insurers actually exploded as prices of these bonds rose, that they are trying to solve an asset liability problem. It's just a math equation. It's not a forecast or anything like that. And that their liability extended, their duration of their liabilities extended dramatically as rates cratered. So they just had to buy more and more. Is that a part of this supply-demand equation that you speak of? Yeah, I mean, as you could literally go through a long, long list of people who are buying bonds for those type of reasons. I buying bonds because it is part of a process which involves having to hold bonds. So it's not just liability matching. You know, you've got things like solvency two rules. So which which says basically you can't you're gonna to have to find a very good reason to buy equity, even if equity is a fantastic hedge for your bonds. So you've got lots of constraints, which remember those constraints were put on people because in the tech crisis, people had too much equity. So you had all these insurance, these life assurance businesses who, who simply were massively overweight equity and therefore incurred huge losses as the equity bubble imploded. The response to that was, you know, to generalize was, you're not allowed to buy as much equity as you were. You need to own fixed income assets. So 
that's not to say there isn't something economic going on as well. You know, nominal GDP growth levels have been in secular decline, but the level of bond yields relative to nominal bond yields have kind of gapped lower in the era of QE. I mean, I do laugh about the story about negative bonds because many, many years ago, Albert Edwards drew, got out a ruler, drew a line on bond yields and said, bond yields are going to zero in what was a very, very basic <laughs> bit of technical analysis and wrote about it in a kind of jokingly way. And yeah, lo and behold, it came true. <laughs> Not sure we even expected that, but that was quite amusing. Well, it's a shocking, some of these prices are just shocking, right? And of course, we're off the lows in negative nominal yields globally and certainly in Europe as well. But when was it that Germany went to, I want to say it was minus 70 on the 10-year in terms of its nominal yield? The date off the top of my head, I can't quite, it was not that long ago. What was on your mind as that happened? I think something to mention, which again, other people, brighter than I have mentioned, we're a generation of savers where cash is not an option, where we can't not do anything. And if you're a large institution which has a sizable cash pile they want to put somewhere, often there's no opportunity to put that cash pile somewhere. So again, better people than I have said that if you want to put your money in cash in the bank, it doesn't move the value of cash. But if you suddenly want to pour all your cash into equity, there's a limited supply of equity. So your equity is going to go up disproportionately. So if you're allocating from cash into equity versus cash into cash, equity is going to have a different change in price, clearly, than cash, which won't change price. So by squeezing people out of cash and squeezing people out of bonds, you're forcing, forcing them into other assets which have limited capacity. And this is a big theme for people like myself because we've got all these fundamental tools and you're sitting there going, okay, I've got a rational model for explaining why this happens and this happens and this happens. Yet I've got all the type of stuff which is going on in terms of things like meme stocks and all this kind of stuff where news announcements are driving stocks up by a ridiculous amount. That's obviously a liquidity issue. And we're doing an awful lot of work at the moment to um, understand you know, liquidity, because I think if you could understand where there is liquidity issues and you could see, to a certain extent, measure how liquidity is having an adverse impact on individual assets, you could also think about how you measure that liquidity and what happens when that liquidity is withdrawn. Because... You know, just as if, you might, if you've got forced buyers of an asset, it's going to push a share price up a lot. But if you've got forced sellers of an asset, the exact opposite is going to happen. So why we may be tapping ourselves on the back and saying, look, haven't markets been fantastically robust through this crisis? What we need to know is, are market prices robust to a removal of central bank interventions? And what we know from 2018 is the answer to that was no. So, yeah, the negative real rates story for me is not so much making equities look cheap. It's a flow of money story. Well, let's get your take on just the world of both absolute and, and relative asset prices. You, you and your team do a lot of work on 
hedging, both directly and through proxy instruments. You do a lot of factor work. And this is, a, as I said at the top of the call, it's such a unique time in terms of where equities sit. As you mentioned, negative real rates, volatility levels. There's no obvious insurance that looks real cheap, at least the direct hedges like S&P options. Some of your recent work is entitled, Inflation Isn't Just a Problem for Bonds. So maybe with that title, love for you just to kind of give us the big picture of what you see now, the vulnerabilities, and then where your team is focusing its efforts on behalf of clients. Yeah, I mean, it's inflation is an interesting problem because most of us haven't really dealt with it in our careers. I think a lot of people who are slightly older you know, experienced it as individually. So I remember 1970s inflation as a kid, but I certainly wasn't in the markets then. So I think trying to relearn the dangers of inflation is proving to be a challenge. You know, first and foremost, inflation risk means that bonds and equities are positively correlated. So leading up to the tech bubble, so through the 1980s and 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, inflation risk was the key concern. And because it was the key concern, bond volatility and equity volatility were responding to inflation volatility. As inflation has become a concern again, bond and equity volatility are correlating with inflation volatility. So the difficulty that we have is that whilst the 1970s, 80s, 90s was about eradicating inflation and a re-rating of bonds and a re-rating of equity, we're looking at the opposite side of that. We're looking at the reintroduction of inflation risk, the reintroduction of policy mistakes relating to inflation and the potential for assets to derate as a function of inflation being persistently higher than people expected and therefore interest rate policy changing. So if that is a genuine regime change, I'm not saying here that we're heading to double-digit inflation permanently. I'm saying that if inflation volatility, if inflation becomes a concern to the extent that it's affecting policy, then inflation risk needs to be hedged in some way. Now, the obvious thing to do is when you're looking for an inflation hedge is to look at stuff which correlates with inflation itself. Now, inflation, whether it's implied or break-evens or whatever, is highly correlated with commodity prices, food prices, copper prices. In fact, I would argue that there's not really much information in forward inflation expectations whatsoever. Five-year and five-year is simply reacting to changes in current prices. You could see that. It's no forward thinking than the copper price is forward thinking. So it's just a reaction function to currently changing prices. So I came up with this idea that we would create an index based purely on inflation beaters. So I'm, I'm using very long-term 20-year beaters, and I'm, I'm looking at stocks which correlate to things like inflation expectations as well as a set of commodity prices. And it is filled with things like mining stocks, oil and gas stocks, chemical companies, semiconductor businesses, all the usual suspects which would relate to commodity prices. And the amusing thing about this is why banks go off and create really, really nice back tests, which then fail out of sample <laughs> on a fairly reasonable, reasonably high incidence. I've got this back test, which shows basically 20 years of zero performance whatsoever and 80% drawdown 
during certain periods. So it, historically, it looks atrocious. And since we've launched it, it's, it's obviously gone through the roof because inflation expectations have gone through the roof. But try going and selling a client this idea that you've got something that you want to add to their portfolio, which is not only delivered no return historically, including dividends, but also has got the potential to lose you an awful lot of money simply because of the nature of the businesses you're trying to buy, i.e. you're buying businesses which are connected to supply and demand imbalances. And historically, those supply and demand imbalances tend to be solved. They also tend to be solved when demand falls off and you get a new wave of supply. So being long inflation, especially within the equity space, has obviously been a silly idea. Everything we've done over the last couple of decades has all been about disinflation, you know, declining bond yields, you know, buying quality stocks over cyclicals, the re-rating of growth stocks. You could have avoided you know, highly volatile cyclical assets and done fairly well. So we created this index and we did it to protect bonds because if you imagine bond yields sell off today, we know the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 doesn't like it. So if you get a change in bond yields, particularly a rapid change in bond yields, the S&P and the NASDAQ tend to decline as well. So the correlation between those equities and bonds tends to be positive when you've got bond volatility. But our inflation index, or you know, there's a bunch of ETFs which also do a similar thing, I guess, tends to have a very robust negative correlation with bonds. So I go around suggesting that you should take your very nice, safe, low volatility bond portfolio and you should have had some fairly violent equity to it. But the outcome is diversification. The outcome is when you do get a pickup in inflation expectations, when bond yields do come under pressure, when you know, bonds start selling off, actually your inflation sensitive equity basket is doing very well indeed. And that therefore, the outcome of that is that you manage to reduce the risk of your bond portfolio, reduce the drawdown in your bond portfolio by buying a very cyclical asset which is very negatively correlated. And again, you know, it's gone down very well as an idea, but you're always up against one, bond investors who can't buy equity, and two, this idea that inflation is transitory. So despite doing very, very well in terms of performance terms, our index has just got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as the earnings have come through. But I'd also, you know, I've only been through a few cycles over the last couple of decades, but I can't remember ever when highly cyclical commodity-focused sectors used to move in advance of the copper price or in advance of the oil price. It was always the commodity price pushing up the equity. It wasn't the other way around. So throughout that kind of post-tech bubble period where you had the NASDAQ declining and you had commodity prices which were pretty robust, you know, you got continuous earning surprise and you got that earnings surprise came from the cyclical areas, which then pushed up cyclical stocks and led them to outperform for several years. So I don't ever remember a time when people didn't think commodity price rises were ever permanent. So that's one thing that we've been doing. And then there's other things we've been doing in terms of trying to capture on volatility, effectively, where we're trying to build structures which allow 
our clients to be effectively long, long-term bond uncertainty without incurring too much carry to get exposure to that. And how do you think about that? I mean, it's probably a little bit too technical to go in, in here, but essentially the way the mechanism works is essentially where there is a shape of the volatility curve in fixed income, which allows us to effectively be long bond volatility without incurring a roll down, a carry, and there's a few bells and whistles around it. But again, the idea here is that, that when you get, for example, as we saw in October, a debate about what's happening in terms of the short end and the long end, you're effectively creating bond volatility that you want to capture. There is always this kind of transition period from, I suppose, bond market uncertainty to interest rate action. They don't happen at the same time. So, for example, in 2016, when the last time we saw a big spike in short rates, it wasn't until you know, Feb 2017 when the market really started to embrace the tightening cycle and things associated with a tightening cycle started happening. So you could get bond volatility without policy change. The policy change happens later. And when it happens, other things start hedging you. For example, we have a strong versus weak balance sheet strategy, which did very, very well starting from 2017 onwards as we went into a kind of tightening cycle. But that strategy wouldn't have done initially very well at the point where the market was debating what was going to happen next. You mentioned the strong versus weak balance sheet strategy, and it just had me thinking about one of the charts I saw that you'd produced, which is just the degree of valuation spread that currently is reflected in high valuations versus low valuations in the S&P. And I want to come back to that, but I did want to make a, a point as you talk about the rate vol surface and just different points on it that might be make trades more financeable from an option standpoint and how different it is from the deeply contango shape of the, of the equity vol term structure. It just makes carrying hedges all the more difficult. And then just on this idea of trying to find hedges and mentioned a bunch of really strong points there on the interaction between stock prices and bond prices amidst inflation. You know, one of the trades that people sometimes try to use in the OTC space is this idea of a, a rate contingent put on the S&P 500, right? The notion that rates can go up and stock prices can go down. And I always found that very interesting in terms of the price because there was this implied negative correlation between the two. And I think it's been marked up since, but certainly if you're in the camp that it could be higher rates that set the equity market on fire, you know, this has been an interesting, interesting trade to look at over time. You could see a scenario like we saw from, you know, the time when the NASDAQ started declining, I guess, in March 2000 to, you know, when you had the NASDAQ just, you know, started declining fairly rapidly. But the S&P was doing fine because you got so much rotation within the index as you rotated from growth back towards value. And therefore, the S&P held up for quite a long time before effectively the whole index went down. So we often get a lot of questions that, okay, aren't we going to see the same again, where 
we get bond yields going up and therefore it's just about rotation. It's not necessarily about market direction. I did some work which took the chart that you were talking about, which is a huge debate. You know, the valuation spread story is a huge debate amongst factor investors in particular, but also, you know, plain vanilla value investors just thinking that this thing should narrow. I mean, a couple of points on that. When we did get a cyclical recovery in 2016, it did try to narrow. In fact, it was narrowing all the time right up until, you know, the Powell pivot and early 2019. And more so, actually, when the economy turned over in early 2018. But this idea that the equity market could withstand a derating of quality growth stocks because it benefits from a value rally. Well, it depends which market you look at. I mean, we looked at the group. So we have a group of stocks, which instead of defining it in terms of value, growth, quality, we just literally define it by their correlation over the last five years to... 10-year bond yield. So you end up with this group, which you could call bond proxies, and then it includes things like consumer staples, utilities, as well as growth stocks. And then in the opposite camp, you have value stocks and cyclicals and all those, you know, a lot of financials. And the argument is how much can they mean revert without doing the market any damage? And then there's another more secular point, which is at what level of yield do we have to get to, to go back to the kind of valuations that we saw 10 years ago, when actually both of these indices, both of these portfolios had the same multiple. Now, when you look at markets such as the US, you find there is twice the market cap in these I suppose, declining bond yield beneficiaries, so bond proxies, those longer duration stocks which have benefited from falling bond yields. Today, there is twice as much market cap. And that market cap is trading roughly at almost 25 to 30 times forward multiples. You've then got the cyclical part of the market cap, which is trading much cheaper at 12 times, but that only represents half of the market cap, which has benefited from falling bond yields. And that defines your correlation because the correlation between the S&P and bonds is really a summation of the type of assets that you've got in the S&P today and what they have done in response to falling bond yields. If you look at Japan, the opposite is true. Japan is full of stocks which usually enjoys rising bond yields because they're more cyclical. So the correlation of Japan to bond yields is different to the correlation between the US and bond yields. And then you've got markets like the UK where it's broadly balanced. There isn't much, you know, there's just as many stocks and market cap which benefit as they do suffer from bond yields. So you have to think about the bond yield risk as how much the bond yield has benefited you in getting here. And again, we could have a kind of circular argument about whether that's passive flow, whether that's stuff just buying it because it's got the mandate to buy it. But I also think you have to have a fundamental reason for that passive flow happening in the first place. Because you know, why has it all gone into tech and not all into Japan? So the idea that a change in the interest rate regime is going to have a very uneven effect, I think, on asset prices. We have this framework, which is incredibly intuitive, but it's also empirically based. What we do is we take quite a few asset classes, so roughly 47 assets, and we do a principal component analysis of the what drives the returns in those assets. 
and you get a framework which basically is risk on risk off which is dictated to you by you know it's, it's basically equity risk and then you've got something we call the demand for bonds you've got therefore easing and tightening now when you're easing and you've got risk off you buy bonds when you've got easing and you've got risk on your long risk assets so your long equity your long high yield bonds when you've got tightening and risk on you want to inflationary protect yourself so inflation assets do very well commodity prices do very well and we've been kind of hovering around that group for quite some time now there is another group which is called tightening and risk off and in that group there is nothing whatsoever there is no long only asset you could buy in that group which will protect you and therefore we're spending an awful lot of time thinking about how we could populate that quadrant of risk within multi-asset portfolios because in that group you're losing money on both your bonds and your equity so this is how we think about hedging we think about hedging like you would any strategic allocation we're trying to think about what a portfolio might consist of what type of crisis might that portfolio suffer from and what type of instrument can we add to that portfolio which will protect the risk that you're not currently protecting we don't just think about here's a cheap way to hedge we're often thinking about what are we hedging in the first place going back to something you said earlier about chris cole and, and volatility you know, he's done a lot of work we've done a lot of work of trying to you know understand the long-term volatility of an asset so you're not just looking at short-term patterns in the volatility of the asset you're also trying to blend that with a very long-term perception of how risky an asset could be because it's often during those crash periods which are rare or rarer that you need your protection and therefore looking at normal volatility is not going to necessarily point you in the right direction so i mean it's partly because of the organization i work for society general is, is is a big derivative house partly because i've sat next to albert edwards for the last 27 years also getting a little bit depressed here and there that we tend to have a focus on risk avoidance and, and trying to trying to manage what we don't know I wonder in, in that fourth quadrant, the most unwelcome one, it sounds like perhaps it's uh, vol itself that might fit in there somehow. And I, I always go back to Leb, who you know, called volatility the only anti-fragile asset, which certainly resonates with me. Just one thing I wanted to go back to just around the S&P, because it does have this self-hedging kind of characteristic to it. You, know, you see internally the correlations and it's somewhere in between the tech representation in S&P, which is increasingly high, and then things like banks and energy and so forth. These things tend to kind of offset each other oftentimes. And one of the things I just wanted you to comment on was this idea of can the handoff occur without too much damage? I'd love for you just to walk through that as you're thinking about that now, maybe in light of you know what could be ongoing inflation and maybe a monetary policy response. How do you think about the potential for that handoff and what could go right or wrong? 
So I think that the risk we're trying to deal with is where policy is accelerated. And when I say policy is accelerated, not just when interest rates are put up, but the degree of which tapering happens. If you were to suddenly accelerate your interest rate rises now and you're not really doing much to release, I suppose, supply at the long end, you're just going to invert the yield curve and that might get people concerned. I think we rely on something called the shadow rate. A colleague of mine, Solomon Tedes, has been using this in, in New York. So think of the shadow rate as is, is the, uh, the interest rate cuts that you've seen plus the impact of quantitative easing. So since we started getting cuts, we've had essentially a couple of hundred of basis point cuts, and we've about, had about 600 basis points of QE-related cuts. So we've cut interest rates by about 800 basis points, all things included. That will start to tighten, and the speed of which it tightens is important because, generally speaking, a tightening phase historically tends to be roughly two-thirds of the easing phase. So if you hit 600 basis points, it's going to turn things over. So in 2018, what turned things over was 500 basis points of interest rate rises with a lot of that result was a function of not interest rates themselves, but tapering, i.e. the effects of QE coming off. So the pace of which all that happens and at what point does it upset the apple cart is crucial. But for as long as markets continue reaching you know, new highs based on a similar set of assets reaching new highs. It just means the risk for equities with a tightening cycle is ever present. The median valuation of the US stock market, so just removing all sector effects and all kind of market cap effects is near all-time highs. So unlike other markets, say, for example, the UK market, the German stock market, there's not really sufficient amount of cheapness in the cheap part of the market to cope with an implosion or even a derating of the expensive part of the market. And you would have seen charts which we've produced from showing that I think you know, the, the top stocks are at 30% of the S&P 500 now, but are only 20% of the total earnings. So you've got concentration risk in the S&P 500 as well. And as I said earlier on, it's because this stuff has done so well and the cyclical value stuff has languished relative and often in absolute terms, that it means that what is supporting the S&P at these levels is the stuff which has done particularly well out of quantitative easing. And therefore, for us to work out whether these levels can be sustained or not, you have to remove quantitative easing from the picture. And last time they tried to do that, it couldn't hold up. <laughs> so I know these are fairly slow proving points. <laughs> you have to wait a few years to work out how robust the market is. But 2022 is going to be a very, very interesting year in terms of potential for policy confusion. I probably say this often, but I couldn't agree more. The, the next six months seems to be a period where some of the uncertainties that have been building are going to be resolved for better or for worse. So we'll certainly see what happens. Andrew, I want to thank you. It's been great to catch up with you over this hour. Our guests will definitely value the insights. So thanks again for being a guest today on, on our podcast, The Alpha Exchange. 
Yeah, thanks again for inviting me on. And uh, yeah, I love listening to your the podcast as well. Some, you've had some great guests on there. So great work. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.